There are at least two major stories unfolding for healthcare in the U.S. right now. In just the past few weeks, we've learned from Health and Human Services Secretary Burwell that half of all payments for Medicare services by 2018 will be based on the value and quality of the care provided to patients, not the number of procedures, but the overall benefit. And quicker than one could say, are commercial payers following suit? Two days later, in fact, a brand new coalition of some of the country's largest health systems and insurers made a rather similar announcement to the secretaries, even upping the ante by saying essentially, we want higher quality to be how all health care is reimbursed. So how do we make sense of this one-two punch of similar intention in light of this other more unsettled story? That's the one about the Affordable Care Act, an ongoing opposition that's managed to get Obamacare back before the Supreme Court, now with a cornerstone of the law, subsidies that have enabled millions to purchase health insurance in possible jeopardy. So are these competing storylines or ones that will eventually sort themselves out no matter what? What does that really mean? We'll chew on that and much more on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here for you biweekly and also for later listening and convenience. You can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. There may finally be no turning back from the slow march of health reform, delivery transformation, and how it's all paid for, but there may well still be setbacks, depending on your point of view, and we can count on plenty of twists and turns, which is why I'm always glad to sit down with the two people who are joining me in the studio today. So I hope you're looking forward to their perspective Two. I'm going to introduce Don Berwick and David Cutler in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us today on WIHI. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of our screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens the floor up to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mitch. All right. Thank you so much, John. And as John said, if you email info at IHI.org right now, uh, especially if you're joining us by phone only, you can get hold of those slides. The slides we'll share with you today. And if you like Twitter, if you like to tweet, don't forget to include at the IHI in your tweets uh, so we can share your thoughts about today's programs uh, program with IHI's followers as well as your own. So it's my pleasure to welcome 
both our guests to the WIHI studio today and to our show. Right across from me is David Cutler. He is currently the Otto Eckstein Professor of Applied Economics in the Department of Economics at Harvard University, and he holds secondary appointments at the Kennedy School of Government and the School of Public Health. He has served on the Council of Economic Advisors and the National Economic Council during the Clinton administration, as well as done a whole host of things, So, which is why we're so thrilled we could barge in on his schedule. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. All right. Next to David is Don Berwick. He is President Emeritus and Senior Fellow here at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the organization he founded and led for nearly 25 years. Don is also the former administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and continues as a lecturer in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. Don is very busy, too, so this is kind of miraculous that I'm looking across the way at both of them, really. So uh, glad to see all of you on board. Many of you are, are uh, just getting on right now, so welcome. We uh, <laughs> hope you'll kind of listen up and have your questions ready uh, because we're all eager to hear what's on your minds as well. So my first question will go to both our guests, and that'll sort of be typical today. We'll just kind of vary the order sometimes. David, I know you're kind of bullish on a number of things happening in healthcare uh, based on a discussion we had before today. So let's start there. What are the encouraging signs and developments that are feeding that bullish feeling? <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Madge. And, and you're, you're right, I am bullish about a number of things. Let me uh, just point out a couple of the, the, the things that make me feel good about healthcare. One is that the number of uninsured people is falling quite dramatically. We see this in data from Gallup. We see this in other sorts of uh, surveys. Every survey that we have shows it. Um, the number of people without insurance coverage has been declining about 5 or 6% or so to at the very, very low levels, levels we haven't seen in quite some time. That's very good news for those people. That's very good news for the providers that take care of them. That's very good news for the states that no longer have to worry about about them. So that's that's all very good. The second piece of good news is that medical costs are increasing at an extremely low rate. In fact, in the history that we've been measuring medical costs with any regularity, the increase in medical spending is as low as we've ever been able to measure it. And so while there were many, many concerns about affordability, and you'll recall a few years ago, there was a national discussion about how we had to very seriously cut our commitment to health care programs. We still, we are not out of the clear. That is, there's still things we have to address. But the, but the reduction in spending growth has provided a lot more room to deal with these, and that's that's very good. And then the third thing that makes me be really encouraged is the fact that when we look at measures of how well the medical care system is doing with basic things like treating people, avoiding errors, um, getting the right care to the right people. Everywhere we look, things seem to be doing much better. So most rates of healthcare-acquired infections are down a lot, as much as 50% or so. Um, rates of readmission to hospitals are uh, plummeting. Um, the efficiency with which care is delivered seems like it's being, it's improving a lot, and that is to a great extent because of the hard work of hospitals, doctors, nurses, 
everyone involved in healthcare and coupled by a policy that has encouraged it through electronic medical records and payment system reform and design and so on. So all of those make me feel like we're headed in the right direction. We're never going to declare victory, but at least it's, 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 a, it's a good sign. Okay, thank you very much. All right, um, we, there is a sort of but or an and, and at the IHO we try to call that band. Uh, tipping my hat to our co my colleague Jane Rossner uh, on the other side of the glass here. Uh, not so much that there's a flip side or a dark side, but some caveats. But first I want to ask you, Don, what would you add to um, David's sentiments here in terms of many things I'm sure you're tracking as well? Thanks, Mitch. It's always an honor to be in, in company with David. He's one of, he's one of the great um, commentators and scholars about healthcare delivery in this country and, and worldwide. So it's uh, he, he's, I agree with what he says, and I learn from him all the time. There's no question there's progress, and David has gone over, gone over it. Uh, uh, that's the path full. On the half-empty side, uh, we really have a long, long way to go. Um, despite the, the bending of the curve in healthcare cost growth, we really know a lot about the levels of total wasted effort, non-value-added effort in healthcare. David, in fact, is one of the great uh, stu students of this, and his, uh, his testimony to Congress several years ago was very eloquent on this fact. My own estimate, it's still realistically 30, conceivably 40 percent of total effort adds no value to patients. That's the, that's the big payoff downstream, and tipping the curve of, of growth is, is in that right direction, but I, I still believe there's a lot to give back. And if you look at what's happening to the payers, by meaning people, uh, it's not a pretty story right now. Uh, individuals are paying much more out-of-pocket than they ever were before. Benefit structures are shifting costs to patients. Uh, employers are still feeling the burden. And government is, uh, the, the, I've called it, I've been so bold as to call it confiscation, that there's actually a reduction in, in available public financing for things like roads and schools because Government budgets are capped or limited, very limited, and uh, a lot of it's going to healthcare. So, on the cost side, I, I think we need the next round now of, uh, of lower cost. On quality, yes, really good progress. I'm, I, I'm very proud of what's happened in uh, in CMS and its leadership through the Innovation Center, the Partnership for Patients. Uh, patient safety looks like it's changing. Uh, that said, we have a lot more to do with variation in practice and uh, making sure every American gets absolutely all the care that really can help them. I think the biggest gap may be a sleeper, and that's prevention. Uh, you know, we know that the, the determinants of health outside healthcare are four times as powerful in determining our health as healthcare is. That's what the epidemiology shows. So, continuing issues of obesity, inactivity, poverty, and its consequences, environmental threats, uh, violence in society, these are eroding our health. And there was a there was there was a portion of the Affordable Care Act that was supposed to be devoted to increasing dramatically efforts on prevention, and I don't think we've swung that bat quite yet, and I think that's the, another thing that we can begin to turn our, head, our heads toward. Okay. What about the triple aim, Don, something uh, that is almost kind of ubiquitous? It's become a ubiquitous idea spreading around the country, uh, and again, it, it reflects a lot of will. Uh, for sure, uh, but some actual work. Um, are you encouraged? Yeah, I am. Uh, the triple aim, uh, it was the, I keep wanting to 
cite its pedigree. I, I know where it came from, and that was the minds of John Whittington and Tom Nolan at IHI back in 2005 or so. It got written up in Health Affairs a year or two later. Uh, but it's a very sticky framework. I used it a lot at CMS myself, and I think it's a good way to organize thinking. Uh, and as I said, you know, I think if you look at the three corners of the triple aim, lower cost per capita, better health for populations, and better care for individuals, we can kind of score each of those. Um, what I see is a definite change in rhetoric. Uh, it's, it's really almost difficult now to go into a, health, a community in this country and not find the triple aim being talked about. Uh, I was just on a call this morning with a organization in South Carolina, and uh, yep, their strategy is triple aim. So we've got it there rhetorically, and as David cited, we're making some progress in each of them, but it would be another step up now to say let's really organize uh, toward those as a, a set of aims that have to simultaneously be achieved. Thank you. John, let's uh, show this. Um, I'm going to go to D David's um, dark side here. <laughs> Public opinion divided. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and I threw that into my opening remarks. Uh, the quality improvement movement doesn't always talk about uh, you know, health insurance specifically, even though equity is clearly on everyone's mind and uh, a lot of support for universal health coverage in many respects. So I wanna, I'm trying to figure out how to connect the dots really around what's, what's going on uh, with this divide uh, that reflects a lot of things, David. Yeah, if there's a dark side to the Affordable Care Act so far, among the dark sides has been that it has not yet convinced people in substantial numbers that it's really working for them. Um, and some believe it never will and that it won't be good for people, and others believe that it is good for people. I obviously believe it, it is good for people. Um, but it's clear that the, that the popular sentiment about it hasn't particularly changed. I think people have heard all the rhetoric they care to hear what they really want to see is, in practice, what actually happens to the medical care system. Does it get better for them, in which case they will then be favorable? Does it get worse for them, in which case they really uh, won't, uh, won't be favorable at all? Um, I think part of the difficulty is people sort of, it's difficult to know what the Affordable Care Act is causing and what it's not causing. So one thing that Don very accurately mentioned is people's cost sharing is going up a lot. And you sometimes see articles that attribute that to the Affordable Care Act. In fact, actually, cost sharing was increasing extremely rapidly before the Affordable Care Act, and employer policies has continued since then. And so that to a great extent, we, th we as economists think that that's relatively independent of the legislation. Um, and that's, But it's clearly something that will have to be dealt with because you can't people are, are feeling very uneasy about it. The insurance coverage, I think people, the, the statistics that I've seen are that people who have received coverage because of the Affordable Care Act are generally pretty happy with the coverage that, that they've received. And so on that part, it's fine. Uh, I, I th but I think the next couple of years will be crucial because on the one hand, you have the Republican Party and conservatives who've never really liked the legislation, although there are parts of it that they increasingly are okay with, but they've never really liked it. What most analysts hope is that what will happen is we'll get away from debates about should we repeal it again, should we defend it again, and into what did it do well and how do we build on that, and what was not as effective about it and how do we address that. 
And that's what most of the surveys say. That is, people who are uneasy don't want to get rid of it, and people who like it are not absolutely thrilled with it. So we need to turn those sentiments into less of a rhetorical debate and, and more of a how do we move forward on all the items we care about? Because as Don was saying, this does not finish what we need to do on healthcare. It's really much more of a kind of marker for having been part of the way there. Okay, thank you. Let's throw up that uh, image there because I want to ask David and then Don. So is this intention on the part of at least Medicare, Medicare which is driving quite a bit right now, is there a connection between that and public sentiment? And does it start to kind of make good on on some promises here? Uh, uh, and I'd love your thoughts and then Don's. Um, so let me set the stage for you for a second. There are two big philosophies in the United States about how to reduce spending in medical care. The one which is, followed, which is being followed by most of corporate America is to increase the cost sharing that employees face. So the number of employees that are in a high deductible health policy has gone from 0% more or less a decade ago to about 20% now. Wow. And it continues to climb, and it's a very big deal. And, uh, and, and, the, and you know, the, many of the exchange plans have very high cost sharing too. So cost sharing is becoming a very big, very big deal. The second, the second broad philosophy is to say that, to a great extent, quality improvements, that is, cost reductions and, and, and clinical quality benefits, are being retarded by the fact that policy has not encouraged them. And the primary way it's not encouraged them is by paying more for doing more rather than paying more for doing better. Of course, if you're paid more for doing more and you're feeling squeezed, then you just wind up doing more. And so the HHS announcement, which is what this is taken from, is in that latter spirit, which is that the, we need to address the issue of paying more for doing more and instead pay more for doing better. What the secretary said is that she wants to almost completely eliminate money which is associated with only doing more, and in the first instance, tie the payments to to volume that are tied to volume to value or quality, and the second instance, change the payment landscape entirely so that it doesn't look like a fee-for-service payment anymore. And as you mentioned in the introduction, the the private sector is, is saying the same sorts of things. Those are very big steps. Those are enormous steps. The extent it now becomes a real issue about how do we make it work? Are the policies that are put forward good policies that providers can work with? Can we address the confluence of different systems out there where providers are feeling ricocheted around because one payer is doing one thing and another payer is doing another thing? What's amazing to me is how ready the provider system is for new payment models. There's everywhere I look, there's readiness for it, combined with a sense of please help to make this work well so that it's not just a complete free-for-all and we have no idea what to do. And my hope is that what HHS and the private folks will do is both push it along and keep it enough within focus 
so that it's clear where where we're going to and that that and that that can be made to work for people okay very good so don build on that thank you david build on that idea um and there have been other things going on at CMMI uh, within Medicare, other kinds of things to push the innovation. So in some ways, when the secretary spoke, it was reflecting uh, one part of a sphere that's you know been building. Um, your your thoughts? Yeah, well, David said it very well. Uh, let me let me re rephrase it a little. So you think of it as three kinds of goals or three mechanisms. One is get everybody covered. That in, to make healthcare a human right, to make it to make it uh, universal, uh, to me it's a moral imperative. It also is a foundational is foundational for actually meeting the healthcare needs of the country. We've already talked about that. We're making progress. We're not there. And, and the Supreme Court decision threat now it could result in tens of uh, millions of people who, who will lose coverage who have it under the Affordable Care Act. Um, that's goal one. Goal two is to change the payment, the flow of money, so it can better support the pursuit of health and well-being. And that's what we're looking at in this slide. It's, it's the secretary saying, well, I think if, if instead of paying for individual elements of care, we begin to pay for health or well-being or outcomes or value, everyone will, will get, we'll be able to support the system to do more sensible things. But you see, the payment system isn't the care. The only way the payment system could actually achieve the triple aim is if the care itself changes. And that's that third piece, which is that David called it, I think, the help or the assistance. If we just change payment and there isn't some very capable response of redesign of care on the delivery side, we, we, we're going to end up in trouble. In fact, we have been there. When the, when the managed care wave came, payment changed, but delivery didn't change. And what happened was the only way out was restrict, restricting care, which would be a very, very bad move for this country. Uh, let me let me try to give a little more specificity. Um, um, there's something that I heard called the air conditioner problem. So if you're a pediatrician taking care of kids with asthma or an adult with chronic lung disease and, it, and a heat wave comes, you can give all the drugs in the world, but I'll tell you a better treatment is an air conditioner and a lot cheaper. How could we have a healthcare payment system that says to the doctor or the hospital, or the, uh, by the way, here's some money, buy an air conditioner instead of here's three pills take them through the day. We can't do that now, not the way we're paying now. But if you think about any way we could consolidate payment and hand, hand the budget over to people that want, that really want to help make people healthy, they might buy an air conditioner. Indeed, I was in Oregon where they're now using coordinated care organizations throughout the state. They buy air conditioners in the health system. That's good sense. And the Secretary's changes are trying to make a step in that direction. Whether the delivery system can change what it does. Uh, is a big question because they're used to a different model. They have capital budgets they have to maintain. They just built the new cath suite or they've got a crane up in the parking lot to build a new wing. That's very different from an air conditioner. And the other problem is transparency because my view is one of the essential elements of the policy framework needs to be the lights have got to be turned on and what's happening to the care and the flow of money. It isn't enough just to change the payment. It gets into a black box unless we be transparent. But on a positive side, with transparency, with really new models of care and making really available to people and with the kind of consolidated payment the Secretary is talking about here, we probably have a chance for some real successes. David alluded to um, also that the private sector and private insurers are, you know, hearing the siren call here and there's many more things that have been going on around global payments and I'd love your thoughts on that because yeah. if, if there's going to be 
a combined, it seems, if, if, if the, the feds, the states, and, you know, the marketplace start to pretty much sing the same, you know, tune. Yeah, I'd ask David about this, yeah. uh, but uh, here's my view. I think m- Medicare... And to some extent, Medicaid, Medicaid is much more transparent than – we know what's happening to payment. and It's, it's un, happened under statute and regulations which have to be shown to the public. So you, we can say there's a shift of payment and the Secretary can intend it and Medicare, the CMMI, can have models that then Secretary can make into regulations. So we have a transparent part of the system, not enough, but it's there. But we really don't know as much about what's happening on the private side. David has correctly characterized a lot of that as cost shifting, which I, by the way – don't think there's much evidence for it, it, it maybe at the margins, but cost shifting is not the answer to the redesign of American healthcare, and we can talk about that if you want. But uh, I, I sense from going around the country talking to healthcare leaders that there is a private market shift in payment toward efforts like this, and uh, so it's not just a public side change. I think. Any any additional things you want to add at all uh, about that? Um, I want one. Uh, thing I, th- I thought I'd throw in there is that um, there's a lot of skepticism about pronouncements, um, and so you're both in some ways underscoring the proof will be in, in the act- activity. Um, there's an interesting question here also where people are saying in so many ways, what does the Affordable Care Act have to do with quality improvement, which I think oh. – <laughs> which is a, a big one. Um, and in some ways, we're, that's what we're talking about here. But I, we haven't always brought them together. I can't help leaping in. I, mean, I ran <laughs> Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, that was very interesting to me. We, we did kind of the – lose, I think, the messaging battle very early on in the Affordable Character in the early days because on the coverage side, because so many more people were getting help. I mean, the list is very long. Uh, uh, three million or more kids covered under the parents' policies up to age 26. Uh, vast increases in prevention benefits, first dollar coverage for prevention. Um, the uh, elimination of precondition, you know, pre-existing conditions is a barrier to getting coverage. Lim- elimination of lifetime limits on, 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 on coverage. Uh, the increase of uh, coverage. And that was the big story. But the Affordable Care Act has 10 titles. And several of those titles are about the other side of the coin, which is making care get better as a route to improvement. And uh, I had the great privilege of helping set up the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, $10 billion of capital ready to offer to people who want to invent new care, and they're doing it. Uh, we, we, we had a whole new portfolio of efforts that supported through payment and otherwise reduction in complications in care with the payoffs David just showed you. The Affordable Care Act is two laws. It's a make the coverage better law and make the care better law. And I personally believe the second is absolutely as important as the first. And um, and that the, you're right. I don't think the public really, really saw that. Mm-hmm. It also raises, for me, the idea whether just the sheer numbers, more people coming into the system, is, is a new le- pressure point on the system itself to do things differently. I don't know. Do you think so, it, David? Uh, it's very I- interesting because people were looking very closely when 2014 came in and the exchanges started and the Medicaid expansion happened and there was this fear that healthcare, that basically we didn't have the capacity to see people and therefore there was going to be access problems, not because people didn't have coverage, but ironically because they did have coverage because now everybody wanted to see the medical, seek care in the medical system and we didn't have the capacity to do it. And so 
people were watching very carefully what happened to spending and so on. And the amazing thing was that there was a very, very small blip in spending associated with people getting coverage, but not actually a very big increase. And of course, the obvious place where you look, if you've got sort of excess demand, is you look at prices, like are prices going up because you know you just can't get it. And the prices were not going up. As best I can tell, the additional services have been met out of the existing capacity, which is sort of interesting. I mean, everything we knew about healthcare was that capacity was horribly used. That is, you had doctors who were sort of partly idle, and not only that, when they when they were seeing patients, many of the times they weren't the patients they needed to see, and some of the patients could really be seen by nurse practitioners or other care providers or non-specialist primary care in the case of specialist care. And so there was everyone knew there was this excess capacity there, but the question was, would that excess capacity be harnessed, or would we just add more people to the set trying to use care? And my and my my suspicion, although I haven't seen firm data, is that we actually did it in the right way, which is to just take the capacity that we have and use that capacity um, somewhat better. Okay, Don. Yeah, I think what was going on is people in the end were mostly getting care. They were just getting it in the wrong place and at the wrong time. Not the best way for them. Going to emergency room later instead of the doctor for an early symptom getting their stroke treated instead of their hypertension treated. And, and so there is a shift of where the demand is. But as David put it, the capacity, a lot of that capacity was in the system. When you're spending 18% of your gross domestic product on health care, uh, believe me, there's, there's capacity to tell. <laughs> That's a very interesting point. All right, we're going to go to chat in just a moment, but I can't resist just throwing in one more uh, kind of big issue here. Um, and a couple of people are asking about it on, on the chat as well. Um, this sort of got some attention, maybe in some circles, not a ton, um, maybe because some people felt like, well, of course it wouldn't work, you know. Um, but I, I'm, I'm showing a slide here for those of you on, on the phone. You know, it's a headline for modern healthcare: why Vermont pulled the plug on single-payer healthcare, which may not be an entirely fair uh, headline. But I'd like to talk about that in the context of sort of state innovation uh, initiative in whichever way it's going. Because we've talked about all of that before, too. In fact, I think when we were all here with Amitabh Chandra, we said, look to states, look to states for sort of engine, and Don, you referred um, to Oregon, for example. I think people often talk about Minnesota, some other things, and clearly Massachusetts as well. Um, so maybe just in that context, rather than we're not going to unpack everything that happened in Vermont, but maybe in that idea about what states can kind of do on their own or be engines of. Um, either one of you want to start. Um, let me start it off, and then I'll I'll leave the single payer aspect to to Don to talk about in terms of what happened there. You're you're correct. That was what we had thought, and I still think that's the most interesting place. And um, you know, in Washington, you can have the same votes over and over again about whether to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and you know, we'll come up with a replacement at some point in the next decade or whatever the the issue is at the moment. Whereas at the state and local level, you have actual honest-to-God people, and you really have to do something about them. The interesting thing to me is that while so much of healthcare, particularly on the coverage end, is split blue versus red, you know, blue states wanting to do coverage expansion, red states not wanting to do uh, it in the way that's in the Affordable Care Act, in terms of thinking about creating a better, better medical care system, there is not very much of a blue-red divide. I mean, if you look at the states that 
are really trying very interesting things with regards to care redesign, redesign within the Medicaid programs. They would be in the Northeast and the Midwest and the South and throughout the Middle Atlantic and out in the West and the Upper Midwest and so on. I mean, just all sorts of very, very interesting things going on, partly because the resources are more mobile at the state level. So what happens is, you know, the, the the state budget is in trouble, and so the governor says, I'm going to cut Medicaid. And then the businesses say, well, if you cut Medicaid, I know my rates are going to go up, so I'm going to think about moving elsewhere. And the governor says, no, I don't want that. So, okay, so we better have a strategy for our state rather than just a strategy for managing Medicaid in our state. And so that's leading to all sorts of really interesting conversations, plus the fact that um, sort of Fortunately or unfortunately, the healthcare system has become very consolidated. So you don't have a very large number of providers and you don't have a very large number of insurers. And so between the state government, which is running both the Medicaid program and paying for its own employees, you've got one or two big insurers and you have the federal government, which is now operating in a, in a different way as we were talking about, that really presents the potential for a lot of very interesting state things. So I think it would have been good for the world had there been an experiment in single payer in the United States. I, you know, it not may or may not be anyone's preferred thing. I think it would be good for the world. I think what's very interesting is that there is a lot of stuff going on about how do you deliver more efficient care, and it may or may not work, but it's going to be really interesting to 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 see. And so many people have the best of intentions at heart as they're trying to do this. Thanks, David. Don? Um, I personally would like to see a single-payer experiment at a state level. I'd like Massachusetts to be such a state. Uh, it, it's difficult. Um, Vermont shows that it's difficult. Let me explain quickly the rationale and just a word about what happened in Vermont and uh, whether there's daylight here. The, the argument for single-payer is essentially a simplification argument. Indeed, David's one of the researchers in the country who documented better than almost anyone has yet what the total administrative burden component of total health care costs in America is, and it's pretty high. And David's analysis, if I remember it, it's the largest single category of non-value-added activity. Whether it's 10% of the bill or 15% of the bill, I don't know, but it's up there. David, I think your estimate was $300 billion or $400 billion. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And that, what's come, that administrative burden comes in a lot of different forms, coding systems, crazy coding systems, the, the billing system, but it also is the insurance system. We, we process a lot of papers, and uh, it's, it's all that paper you get that says this is not a bill that's coming out of <laughs> a system that's very complex. So if we're looking to save some money here that doesn't hurt people at all, it's the opposite of rationing care, uh, why not stop that nonsense and, and make it really, really simple? And the whole, the driving idea behind single payer is one stream of payment with all one set of codes, one set of paperwork, maybe none. Um, it's very promising. It's not going to sell at the national level at the moment, but the question is, could a state carry it out? Vermont tried, wanted to go in that direction, but they, they couldn't make it work, and the problems were technical and political. The, the biggest problem was getting the money into a single stream. They felt the only really reasonable way to do that was through a tax-based system, where instead of paying for health care through your employer or through out-of-pocket or through... Um, 
your contributions to your premium, all of which is taking money away, put all of that payment into one single stream through the tax system, and they proposed a payroll tax and a personal tax. That's quite a lot of money because it's 18% of the economy, remember. So we're moving 18% of the economy from non, well, half of that, because we already have a lot of government insurance, but at least half of that from the private flow of money to a tax-based flow. And um, that was alarmist. Uh, anyone that opposed it, and believe me, there were people that don't want to see us simplify the system, said, oh, big tax increase. Think back when Medicare was started in 1965. What happened? Today, if you look at your paycheck, there's, there's a deduction for Medicare contribution. You're, you're putting money through the tax system into the Medicare trust fund that later will support your care when you're a Medicare beneficiary. Well, that could have been framed as a tax increase. I'm sure it was by the opponents. Actually, it was a shift of payment from the other way you would have covered yourself to a tax system that's more efficient. Vermont lost that messaging right at the start. There were a couple of other problems, like small businesses, how, to, how are they dealt with? Uh, the commuters are a big problem in Vermont. Uh, they need to be covered, but they're not living in the state. There were some federal preemption laws. All of that is a lesson learned. I personally think it's possible to do it if a state had the will. I think we could solve our way to it. It isn't, it isn't straightforward, but I think it's doable. And in my own personal opinion, the payoff and reduction of complexity would be very great. And the other thing, a single payer can be a very strong voice for health care delivery reform. They can negotiate prices with drug companies. They can, they can change the way hospitals are paid even faster than the secretary can. Uh, they can do things that help really move us toward uh, quality. And uh, so we'll see. I hope th I hope it's not a conversation that's over. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, okay. So wonderful and interesting remarks from both Don Berwick and David Cutler. Uh, and um, I'm going to now sort of move into your comments and questions on chat. I'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, John, just in case uh, we got some new folk with us, uh, make sure everyone knows how to participate in the chat. Yeah, down in the chat, uh, make sure that your uh, questions and comments are addressed to all participants. Just click it to all participants in the send to bar. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Well, I um, some things I think we even as I was uh, we were still going on here. I think we've addressed a couple of things here. Um, and uh, let's see. We always talk about uh, it's, it seems like we always talk about how inequity is driving costs, but most pay for performance programs don't excuse me explicitly address equity. Is there a way we can structure some of these payment programs to better enhance equity? I think that's a very interesting one, David. Yeah, actually, there's an, another comment about um, about the. Um, what are the key areas in which one should one should uh, change? And I think it really gets at the equity issue because there, there, if you say what, what is it that we can do, like how would you actually improve the quality? One of the very big things has to do with the inequity. So as I think about it in my mind, I think about different types of patients, and one type of patient is sort of a predictable routine. Thing. So a patient with uh, joint pain or, or back pain or cardi routine cardiac problems or, or uh, pregnancy, routine pregnancy, whatever it is. And there it's really an issue about figuring out what is the right standard of care and making sure you follow the standard of care and that you know it, it evolves over time in an appropriate way and so on. And then there's a second issue, which is really what the inequity question gets to, which is what about those people who don't fit? 
they're very, very expensive. They've got a number of problems. They've got incredible comorbidities and so on. And what's interesting is towards the top of the list of many health systems is the idea of wanting to work with high cost, predictably high cost patients and see how to manage them better. And what we know is, of course, that no two of those people are alike. That is, every high-cost person is different from every other high-cost person. On the other hand, they have, very, they have a lot of similarities. They typically have multiple chronic conditions. They typically have behavioral health or substance abuse problems. They're, they're um, often, in the air conditioner analogy is excellent, which is they often have social as well as uh, medical problems. And there are processes that can be put in place that will address them in terms of care managers and social work and a variety of other things like that. And I think that's actually a very big area because to me, one of the best ways to save money is working with those people who are getting the worst outcomes, suffering the worst outcomes because the system isn't working for them and they don't know how to make it work and to help them to make it work. So I, I am hopeful that this will actually be an improvement in equity, not just a kind of reduction in cost that gets distributed in the way that you know a lot of income gets distributed in the country. Okay, thank you very much. Um, feel free, Don, to build on that. There's another, I'm not quite sure what the segue is here, but there's a good question here. Future viability of ACOs. What, what are we learning about ACOs? ACOs are accountable care organizations. Uh, we could get into the weeds here. Let me try to stay out of the <laughs> weeds. Uh, the accountable care organization idea is to keep fee-for-service payment, traditional Medicare payment, but do it in a way that some care delivery entity can bear risk nonetheless, get rewarded if costs are lower than predicted, get bear some extra cost if the costs are higher than predicted. And it's, it's an amalgam. It's, it's a compromise approach, which doesn't go all the way toward uh, global payment or capitated payment. That's what it is. I, I was administrator when we wrote the ACO reg, so I know it very, very deeply. It's a very interesting experiment. Um, it's now, we now have over 400 ACOs in the country, I believe, uh, and the, their data are starting to come in on how they're performing. Let me just explain. The, the entity that is the ACO now could be a group of doctors or could be a hospital with some doctors or a group of hospitals, but they're saying we'll, we'll take the risk now for care of this population even though we're get, still getting paid fee-for-service. Um, it's a very mixed outcome. Uh, so right now, I think David may correct me, about half of them are, are doing okay. They're either not losing money or making a little that they didn't think they would make. And uh, the quality scores are being maintained, so they're not skimping on care. Half of them are not figuring out how to do it yet. Uh, they haven't had the capital to build the information systems they need or to invest, say, in home health care workers or things they need to actually change the patterns of utilization. And I think we're in their midst right now of learning what are the elements that allow the ones that make it to make it and the ones that aren't to, to, to not make it. Right now, the, there's a new proposed rule out that is very controversial as to how much risk should be pushed onto the ACOs, and, and they're pushing back. They're saying, we don't really want to take that much risk yet. We'd like, the, we'd like the upside gain if we do well, but not the downside loss if we don't. And that's going to be worked out in this, in this congressional session about how far we go with risk. Good experiment. Uh, but the way to understand ACOs is as 
I, they're, they're like an animal in the zoo. There's a whole bunch of animals now out there trying to move the way the Secretary is talking about toward value-based, quality-oriented payment. ACOs are one. Uh, bundled payment is another. Uh, uh, medical homes and supporting payments for coordinated care is another. Experiments at more consolidated payment, like in Oregon, is another. And, and I celebrate that. I think these various forms, if we have the intelligence to study them, are going to teach us which what can work and what can't. Mm -hmm. David, you know more about this than I do. Well, I just no, I just want to build on that by adding one key economic distinction, which is that what all of these models are about, the way they'll work, is by encouraging clinical integration. What we as economists don't know and what the world doesn't know is whether in order to achieve clinical integration, you need to have corporate integration. And so a lot of the organizations have the presumption that in order to clinically integrate, you need to corporately integrate. And that's why we're seeing mergers and acquisitions go up. In part, that's why we're seeing it and so on. On the other hand, most of what we know from past experiences in healthcare is that corporate integration is neither necessary nor sufficient to be clinically integrated. That is, you don't always clinically integrate when you're corporately integrated, and you don't not do it when you're not corporately integrated. And in fact, if you look at big hospital systems, they tend to do no better on average, not, not super big, but you know, just if you look at the range of hospital systems, they tend to do no better on average than, say, independent hospitals in terms of measures of quality. So it's a so it's a real issue whether you need that. Is it helpful to clinically to corporately integrate because then you really get everybody on the same page and it's clear how to do it, or is that a diversion from the real um, task of trying to figure out how to manage patients better? And I don't. There's certainly no single answer theoretically that one knows about for that. And hopefully we'll we'll we'll, fi we'll evolve the right answer over time. The, the ambivalence of public policy is very strong. You saw this week the decision in Boise, Idaho about St. Luke's system, very good hospital system. We're now acquiring a large number of physician practices, but the courts ruled you can't do that. That's, that's uh, there are antitrust issues. Well, the system would argue, wait a minute, you want us to coordinate care. The best way to do that is to have a new structural relationship, financial relationship with the docs so that we can work out so it becomes, we can empty our beds and docs can thrive and the community's better off, it looks different depending on how, how you approach it. And I, uh, we're going to have to play that through nationally now to decide just how much cooperation we want and when it becomes collusion. And we're not clear yet on that. Right. I think the public is also somewhat suspicious of that as well. And, um, you know, that exactly what's going on. And am I really, the, the purpose of all of this, is it really about me, <laughs> the patient in my care? Um, question in here uh, about, I think, David, it's picking up on your comment about paying more for doing better. And somebody has asked, are there one or two things, um, and perhaps either of you could think of, uh, that we could really focus on and where the the payoff, uh, you know, would, would be great? It's kind of a question, I guess, about some clinical issues, as well as I see laced through here, as there should be on the chat, of course, is a lot of discussion about other aspects of things and aging and aging in place and the community and focus on health. And Don, you mentioned prevention. But I'm just wondering, is there, are there, this gentleman is asked, I think it's a gentleman, excuse me, the person here is asked um, about one or two things. Yeah, it's, so it's a great issue. I, I, I don't know that there are one or two. 
But I think there are a number of areas, and it, some of it comes to what we were chatting about just a couple of minutes ago, which is if you think about healthcare not as healthcare, but as a business, just a regular business, some of what healthcare does is do things that are very standard. We need a million widgets, so how do we produce widgets in a very standardized, good way? And so there are some parts of care which are pretty routine, and the question is how to treat them well, where the, where the way I like to think about the care is not, okay, I'm doing a surgery, although that's clearly important to, to, to do that right, but I'm treating a patient with X condition. What's the right way to treat a patient with X condition? And then there are some one-off patients, sort of patients who are very complicated and for whom there's no hope of standardization because there is no, no two of them who are alike. And so, and so one needs to, 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 to think about them. And then a, a third dimension I would add is that every health system that's looked at it has found incredible variation within their institution across different hospitals, units of hospitals, nursing shifts within units of, do of hospitals, doctors within nursing shifts within units of hospitals and hospitals. And what that variation is picking up is the fact that there's not a lot of incentive to learn from each other. I was at a meeting of a number of hospital, um, uh, uh, ho sort of chief medical officers and so on. I said, you've been ordered to save money. Just suppose you've been ordered to save money. How would you do it? I sort of laid out that. I said, now, how many of you, and they all said, yes, and I've been or I have been ordered to save money. And <laughs> so I said, how many of you feel like you have a good handle on how to do that? And no one raised a hand. You know, sort of like, well, I kind of vaguely understand, but not really. And so uh, to come back to something Don said, people are going to need help figuring out how to do this. I think the what to do is a little bit clearer than the how to do it. And that does worry me some for exactly the reasons that Don said, which is the last time we had a what to do without knowing how to do it, it didn't result in such a great outcome. One of the interesting things is the secretary, when she made her announcement about payment change, also made an announcement about a learning network and a transformation network. And she said she was going to create it and put some money behind it and so on. I will be very curious to see how that goes. Can it reach out to physicians' offices and clinics all across the country and say, here's how you can do it? Because that's we're going to need that as much as we need to, to get the top-line incentives right. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, anything to add to that? Interesting rallying cry going on on the chat. Don is a little further away from the screen, so he can't see it. Um, there is a question here about a quadruple aim. Let me just see if I can get to it, because what are your thoughts about expanding the triple aim to the quadruple aim, clinician and health force wellness, as suggested by Dr. Bodenheimer? Clinician burnout is reality at this time and will only get worse. Um, so if it comes from Dr. Berwick as part of IHI, there will be this will be better received. <laughs> We can make some news here, Don. No, no, no. We better go through a process. But uh, workforce issues, huge. I mean, huge. you know, they have. I don't know about the quadruple lane, but I, 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 I'm in no position to say yeah, for, I mean, I, it's I, a good it's, point, though. I don't want to in, uh, <laughs> interpret the Talmud here, but I think, uh, I mean, the triple aim is an attempt to describe the social need 
that we all have, better care, better health, and lower cost. The reason for that, by the way, comes as much as anything from the modern approach to quality. The nature of quality is meeting the need of, the so- of society. And I think it's a pretty powerful framing. You know, we would be very proud to say we're spending our resources to produce health, to make health care as good as it possibly be, and not waste a nickel. So, I, I mean, I, I like that framing. But I think it's a brilliant idea, and you're seeing more and more of this, for health care to apply that triple aim f- first, if, or if not only, to the healthcare workforce. It's enormous. It, 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 if we can't do it for ourselves, what makes us think we could do it for others? And it is about joy. I mean, after all, the whole point here is about having lives that we feel good about. And so I think this is related to joy and work. So I, I would say my framing would be let's, ne- let's always make sure that what we're asking to happen in the greater community is happening with the healthcare workforce itself. And yes, it's absolutely true. It's canonical in the service industries. You, you can't get great care or service from a, the efforts of a demoralized, unappreciated, or, or a non, non-joyous uh, workforce. My only, I mean, my, my concern is if we put joy in work, which would be a great framing as, one, as the fourth aim, we might be confusing a, a means with an end, but uh, I, I wouldn't follow my sword on it. Point, the point is very well taken. Let's, let's develop a healthcare, an attitude toward inclusion of the healthcare workforce that really counts. Because one other thing, David earlier characterized the kind of two ways to think about this through cost shifting or you know, accountability or change. This is with the same thing in a different guise, which is we are really fooling ourselves fooling ourselves if we think we could actually change incentives enough to produce really great care. We can't without attending to the intrinsic morale and meaning in the work of the workforce. So it's it's essential to achieving our aims. Thank you. A couple of uh, quick yeah, well, we'll just sort of some quick thoughts because we're, we are coming to the top of the hour. Um, some folks have asked about technology. Um, are we doing as much as we can in, in that space uh, for some improvements and obviously efficiencies and cost saving, et cetera? Uh, there's also um, questions about drug prices. <laughs> um, and uh, to what extent... I don't know. We're not talking about them that much. Uh, do they uh, escape scrutiny? Probably not from you, uh, David. Um, are they a big player right now um, or continue to be a big player um, in this overall situation we're describing? You know, Madge, one of the very interesting things is that uh, until Savaldi, the, the you know, 80-something thousand dollar hep C treatment, there hadn't been a blockbuster drug probably since Lipitor. <laughs> and that in the interim, what had been developed were very expensive drugs, typically for oncology, that had modest improvements in survival, often not at high quality of life, and that almost invariably underperformed their expectations in terms of the market's forecasts about how much they would sell. And so the last few years, one of the reasons why cost increases had been relatively low is because a lot of drugs like Lipitor were coming off patent and they were not being replaced by very expensive drugs on patent. That may or may not change. So there are many people who believe that the pipeline is full of very expensive drugs. 
And there are many people who believe that, you know, like Zaltrap, they'll be about the same as the drug that came before, but twice as expensive, and within a week have their price cut by 50%. I, I think the, the, the fundamental issue here, and it's going to, to co- come back to, to a couple themes, is to what extent is the drug really, truly a breakthrough in terms of how to treat people? And what we've learned through Savaldi and Lipitor and so on is that if it is, people will buy it, and it will be very expensive, but we'll find a way to deal with it. And if it's not, the pressure is increasingly there to not use it as much, whether it's because the patients are paying high cost sharing and you can't ethically recommend it to your patients, or whether it's because society just has a fit and then it winds up not not being seen in such a good light. So I hope we reach the era where we say, okay, there are lots more drugs. If it's really worth it, we'll pay a lot for it. But if it's not worth it, don't expect to take in in, in an enormous amount of money. Okay, thanks. All right, let's um, – got just really a, a couple minutes left. I'm going to just ask one more question, and those will be sort of your final remarks. And uh, I hope raising this uh, at the end uh, doesn't in any way reflect on its uh, lack of importance. The shift in thinking about health, thinking about prevention more, really uh, the building these new coalitions between healthcare and uh, health entities, public health, community health, IHI is certainly uh, – in this space right now with 100 million healthier lives and other efforts. And uh, that true, that too is experimental, uh, and yet it seems like it has to happen uh, to sort of change things. Optimistic about that, Don, in some way? Long run, yes. Uh, short run right now that we're struggling through this change in business models, and uh, I don't think we yet have a solution to the problem as to how to shift energies to where they need to be. Boy, if we could deal with the diabetes epidemic upstream, or with uh, poverty as a generator of uh, the, the consequences of poverty, uh, we would be we have a lot of leverage. But that's that's a very big change in social policy. I, th- I think we'll get there. We're a smart country, but right now it's more talk than action. That said, tremendous examples going on around the country in pockets now. IHI's own project, 100 million healthier lives, is very thrilling. I've been recently seeing very interesting stuff going on in Memphis, Tennessee, community by community. So. We'll, we'll see the change. It's going to be really hard to do it, though, without the kind of payment changes we've been talking about. Okay. Some final thoughts from you, uh, David, on, on uh, anything. People are, I, I think, buzzing around here on the chat about uh, many things. It's always great when you all speak to one another. People are really interested in workforce issues, for sure. Um, we couldn't get to everything today. It always gives me some ideas for further programs. But any, any <laughs> final thoughts, David? Um, let me co- compare and contrast, if you will, healthcare with other industries. There are many industries that have undergone the transformation that healthcare is hopefully poised to do, where they used to be very expensive and not very good, and now they're much better. Um, I remember back in the day when the punchline of jokes was not the doctor or the administrative assistant or the biller, but the used car salesman, and now buying a car is somewhat a more enjoyable activity, if not totally enjoyable. Some industries have gone through that very well. They've changed. They've adapted. Firms have done well. They've sort of grown and matured and gotten better. And some industries have come through it kicking and screaming. 
you know, think about what Walmart did for retail trade and the enormous dislocations associated with that. I hope that healthcare will go through it well as opposed to the other way. But I am often reminded of a famous quotation by um, a great philosopher named Jerry Garcia, (laughs) (laughs) who said, it's a shame that somebody has to do something, but it has to be us. And somebody has to do something, it's a shame that it has to be us. And really, I think he had it mostly right. Somebody has to do something, but it's a shame that it has to be you because we are dumping this problem on the laps of everyone who provides medical care, and we're saying, figure this out. And if we can, then we'll all live up to Jerry Garcia's adage, and we'll (laughs) all be very happy. And in the opposite case, I don't even want to think about it. All right. Kicking and screaming, or Jerry Garcia. Sorry we don't have that music to go out on (laughs) today, but I want to thank David Cutler and Don Berwick very much for their time and their wisdom today. Thank you, wonderful audience, for all your comments and the uh, very uh, active chat. Uh, next up on WIH on February 26, uh, same time, same station, topping the charts in pediatrics and adverse events reporting. We're going to hear from three, the three, I should say, the three winners, uh, the audience choices for best presentation at IHI's 20th Annual Scientific Symposium that took place in December. Reminder, you can download the chat when you get off the program, or you can ask for it at info at IHI.org, or you can wait for everything to get posted, excuse me, to the website tomorrow, the chat the slides, a resource document that Vicki Minden puts together, and all the audio. Uh, Jane Rossner often uh, writes something pithy on our Facebook page. Feel free to build upon that. Any questions whatsoever, please email info at IHI.org. There are wonderful people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And I don't always remember to give a big shout-out to the team uh, at CSI here at IHI. They handle all your emails and calls about every single program, including WIHI, and are a big help to us as well. So thank you, Team CSI. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for joining. Good day, everyone.